Welcome to Weird Era, a literary podcast where we ask the right questions. Today we are talking to author Sarah Mintz about their debut novel, Norma. Sarah Mintz is a graduate of the English MA program at the University of Regina. Her work has been published with Book Hug Press, Jack Pine Press, Radiant Press, Apocalypse Confidential, The Sea and Cedar Literary Magazine, and Agnes and True. Widowhood and Weirdos, online and off, Norma is so dark it smarts, is how this delightful novel begins uh, its copy. It's a terrible freedom to linger unaccounted for, which we will discuss. Um, the novel uh, centers around Norma, who is waking up and cracking up. Decades of marriage, housekeeping, and family responsibility, buried with her husband Hank. Now she's free, gorging on an online riot of canceled soap operas, message boards, and grocery store focus groups. Transcribing chatter for 50 cents a minute, it's all of humanity, grim, funny, and desperate, wafting into her world, a world reeking with the funk of old fast food wrappers, cold, stale, recycled air, and desiccated car upholstery. And one where appropriate boundaries are suddenly slipping too, when a voice from one of her transcripts goes from virtual to IRL and is, turns out it's just down the block. Norma is a tart, unhinged flail into widowhood. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And dear readers, I have patience. Apparently, I'm losing my voice. Um, <laughs> uh, dear listeners, rather. I guess my first question for you, Sarah, is... Uh, why the interest, or if you can explain what prompted the interest in exploring elderly psyche? Oh, okay. That's a good question. I wasn't totally expecting. I, I thought you were going to go in, in the direction of like transcription and I was going to be, I kind of had something ready. Um, <sighs> an elderly psyche, it probably just comes from aging, uh, like aging personally and thinking about your body kind of dying. So I think I had the first line in the book, which was something like the older I get, the dirtier I feel, um, was just something I thought to myself in the morning. Um, and then I, I don't know, you kind of just take it to its end or you, you run through a scenario where that could be progressively or is gets progressively worse. So, um, yeah, I think from personal experience and then like uh, extracted that into a, a fictional scenario, if you know what I mean. I do, but that's so interesting because I guess my emphasis and my read of the book is so much more um, psychological than physical. Um, and so hearing you sort of answer, it's sort of telling me that it actually started with a physical sort of inquiry or observation but would you would you agree or disagree when I think or state that I think the book is much more psychological than physical yeah no you're right and afterwards um I, I guess um I'd have to think about why I went in that direction and because afterwards or even maybe more recently I've been like maybe I should because I started out in a physical way and I had this sort of sense of of degrading degradation in a um, and then I, it totally does go in a 
psychological direction. And I wondered if that was something that I would have done differently if I was to do it again. But I suppose um, just because I, I don't know, I live in my head because everybody lives in their head. That's where it all ends up taking place anyway. Um, so the physical stuff becomes kind of like a pain but it's kind of like, oh, so so here's a tangent um, about my grandma. Uh, mm -hmm. She's 87 now, and she's always been really proud of her independence and, and going all over the world and driving herself around. And it was just last year that she had a fall, and she had her driver's license taken away, and all these, like, series of missteps that kind of showed her age to her. And um, we were all like, yeah, you're – not to be, not to, not to sound like an asshole, but we were all like, yeah, this is what happens when, when you get old, but psychological, like she just couldn't, she can't manage it. Like as far as her, um, her sense of who she is, it's all undermined by what she can no longer do. So um, I don't know, I guess it's just so, so connected that at the time I didn't think about it. And then afterwards I was like, oh, I should have maybe emphasized some of the physical more, but maybe just because they're so interrelated, it, it flowed naturally initially. And then, um, uh, yeah, I know what you mean, though. <laughs> I know. No, and I do, too. And, and, and it also sounds like you yourself are aging, and then someone who is aging ahead of you had an elder experience, like, at the same time. And I can see sort of that cross-section or stirring something in your brain. I guess, from my perspective... I was like, here is a person who, because Norma's pretty healthy for an elderly person. Like she's, yeah. she's, you know, like she's, I'm using quotations, like crippled in the sense that like most elderly people are at a disadvantage, but mm -hmm. that's never really a problem for her in the book. The problem for her is much more existential and emotional. Um, and so that's why I wanted to ask you about it. Yeah, I think that, um, I guess, so... So for her, her age um, at, at some point, it, it had something to do with feeling invisible in the world. Mm -hmm. So she no longer had like really a, a place privately. And at, at that point, when you when you realize that you don't have like a home life or a, a, a comfortable situation and it's time to like go into the world and do things. And I, I feel like I've restarted my life enough times that I know that you have to like get out there whether you want to or not. But the older you get, the kind of... That, that your your relationship to the outer world changes and how you might put yourself out there. And so she's finding herself, um, yeah, that she has to put herself out there uh, as she's getting older. She has to start again at 67, and she really, she has no experience with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you think it's possible to get older and not get wiser? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think mm -hmm. about that a lot, actually. So um, I always, I just always thought that you would. I thought that mm -hmm. that's what it everyone was, tells you. It's yeah, a, I thought it was inevitable. You. But I don't, I don't know. You work at a, a bar long enough, and you you meet people who come in, and they've had the same life, and maybe they've just been like like killing their brain or well, like it doesn't even have to be that you can have wisdom and still kill your brain, but there's just people that somehow manage to acquire no wisdom at all. And then you wonder like where it's coming from or if you have any, and it, it becomes like kind of an ephemeral thing, but I for sure thought about 
why why we think that old people are supposed to be wise and where their wisdom is now or if it's changed. So on page 73, um, there's an incredible, it starts with an incredible passage. Um, and I, I wonder if you mind reading that out for the listeners. Okay. Uh, so it says, you have to say the next thing to get the game to go ahead, but I couldn't say it. I can't say the right thing. This must be a new service. At least the unnatural flatness of a recognizable robot's reply fits together with what I'm supposed to be, what I am in the world. Robotic robots and their warm and warm bank tellers preserve the illusion. Don't let them mimic human unsurety, scrounge for appropriate distance, insert word whiskers and fraternal jocularity, affect an off-the-cuff all-American boyish tone. What would Buck think of the dental assisting robots affecting the all-American boy stylings of heroes like heroes like Howie Zimmer? Don't let them re- don't let them remind us that we can't remember the last time we were people, and that with such distance between people and such presumption by false people, we grow to affect that which we thought we were but have never really been alien or adapted. Both likely because, as they say, X is not a monolith. Nice for the pain shill who makes it through, but. How it makes me sick to fall behind and watch the parts that get picked up, mutations that take and keep, and the horrid little winners flaunting yesterday's failures as today's well-earned successes. I'm not bitter. Not bitter. No, just old. So, sim- thank you for that. Um, so, similarly, can we get old without getting bitter? Is that even a possibility? Um... Yeah, definitely you can. And I only say that because my mom is in no way better. Um, So I know I know just from like personal experience that you can get old, um, you can become physically wrecked, you can have like, you know, pain and heartache and and somehow just your your attitude or your relationship to the world. I think she has a very um, purposeful relationship. She decides when I was younger and and like more prone to depressive periods she would be like you have to choose to be happy and I would be like my god like this is (laughs) like I can't believe you can say that to me but um I I know kind of what she means I'm not sure if that the wording of that is satisfying but I feel I can feel it now what she means by that and uh I try to do something similar because you just feel better um uh, a bitterness, a jadedness, like like resentment towards the world and things that you have or don't have uh, or or decisions you made or didn't make. Um, I don't know. It'll eat you up. It'll make you boring and miserable. And uh, that's the worst. I, I, I can so relate to, um, you know, having a, a positive person in your life. And especially as you point out in your sort of existential younger days of depression, having someone constantly tell you that happiness is a choice and it's being so um so hard to understand and and i i love the way that you put it that maybe that's not the best like phrasing of what's being said but you understand it now yeah, as a feel feeling it. Yeah. yeah but I, I guess i'm gonna put you on the spot as a writer <laughs> and sort of like you know you never have to have a definitive answer here but um to sort of talk about what you've managed to understand to feel if you've managed to be able to like control your feelings to a certain extent so i would love to say that it 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 was me and i did (laughs) get my feelings under control but i think some of it has to do with aging so um maybe you can age in in different directions and Mm. you can in indulge certain um you know sort of 
personality traits or propensities and you can really become more and more of that uh, or you can choose different directions and so I think it's kind of it's kind of like practicing to not be self-indulgent in a negative way enough times that it kind of feels like a choice or it's like um yeah it's it's like a choice that becomes a habit that that kind of thing and i think maybe that's some version of what my mom meant so you have to you have to choose but it's like when you're in a depressive mood when you're like like a catastrophic world view sort of like everything's weighing down on your head you can't choose from there mm-hmm. but when it starts to lessen when you can make the choice you can kind of redirect how you respond to things mm-hmm. so I, I i don't know i guess it's it's like choice is just feels like a um almost like flippant or like mm-hmm. like minim, minimal um but it's more like but at, at some point you have to like uh, I don't know, go running or, or mm-hmm. I don't, go lay in the sun or, or go walk in the forest or do something that you know is going to like change the direction. Um, but yeah, all of that stuff sounds completely pat and, and awful when you're in a depressive mode or period. So it's, yeah, it's hard to listen to any kind of advice until you somehow get to the other side of that. Mm-hmm. And then I think that's, I think that's really well said. Um, it's, I think you've made a distinction between um, a choice uh, being such a heavy word versus like learning how to respond to yeah. a feeling. Yeah, um, that's well put. There's this idea of um, this idea of an elderly woman peeping into a conversation that is essentially, and I, I don't think we're spoiling too much, but that is essentially about incest and pedophilia. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things together. So we have incest which already has a taboo we have pedophilia which is already like a taboo and then we have those like sex heavily sexualized aspects being fed into the ears of an elderly woman which then in itself already feels like in like another taboo um are you trying to make readers uncomfortable or is that an intent and and definitely not that was not my intent um uh so a lot of this book came out of transcription, like I'd been doing it for on and off for a few years. And some of the stuff I would encounter, I was just like, I can't believe I am typing this out. Or like I, I tried to explain this in the book, but like in more um, more interesting and more, it got it got kind of creative or uh, not, not as accurate as it would be in life. But mm-hmm. uh, some of the organizations, I feel like, this is insane that you're recording these personal conversations and you're just like, anybody can transcribe it. You just have access. And so I kind of wanted to, it was my own shock. I wanted to translate. And so I kind of did that in a really extreme way. And so, but uh, I really did encounter some like kind of crazy things that I felt like maybe I shouldn't have access to. And like, just as a, like a casual transcriber, like just somebody who does it online, like it felt like the kind of thing that you don't just sign some online NDA, like maybe you should have to, I don't know, be part of something that cares about the situation more. It just felt so impersonal, but somebody 
who's trusting these organizations doesn't realize how impersonal it becomes and what's happening to their data, um, especially like a young person. So the girl in the story, um, this is something that she wouldn't consider. I, I would imagine that she wouldn't consider that the police agencies or even the like the more caring version of that, some invented agency that's supposed to like, like talk her through the, uh, the harder parts of it, that they would actually have no um, uh, loyalty to her in any way. Yeah, it's all it's all it's all sham loyalty, and um, that that's part of what I wanted to get across. And it, it was just through my own shock at the kind of things um, I was encountering. Um, yeah. On page 17, you write, maybe deformity is only a mistake of variability, and this deformed machine, seeping eyeball of a world spirit, is one of many, and for all its life and vitality, it never gets to be as beautiful as the most beautiful version. Can you expand on this a bit for our <laughs> listeners? Can you tell us yeah. what's being said here? Okay, so this essentially comes out of uh, reading Marshall McLuhan and... Hmm. Um, just really loving how poetic he he gets with his theories of human psyche interacting with like a technologically changed world and um i guess i was applying that to trying to think of how i could um so i'm sort of applying what i feel like was his framework to um my version of of what the world looks like when you when you zoom out um and so it's kind of like a a, an interconnection of things and and people but we have this i we have these sort of romantic ideas about what um what happens in the world and like the best ideas are the ones that are going forward and the you know, progress is good and uh, we're all moving in the right direction kind of thing. But uh, why do we why do we have that romantic vision of of progress and technology and human decisions? I think that it's more likely that um, not more likely, but I think one possibility is that these are sort of like evolutionary reaches. So um, and, and Marshall McLuhan's sort of uh, mythology, it's basically like every technological addition is is like your body is being expanded. So like even just a house is kind of like your clothes or like a car being like your, your feet or uh, trying to think of better ways to say it, but I get tongue tied. Um, so all of these additions, all of these uh, t- technological additions that we add to ourselves, what they really do is upset the ratio between our senses. So we have, you know, taste and hearing and the eyes and, and, and vision and and touch and all of these things. And as we augment them, they just become sort of like these um, mutated versions of a human. Mm-hmm. And so then I picture it all together, like this real um, macro version of what we're creating in the world with our, our kind of like, um, individual humans being part of obviously like a a larger collective um, and pushing and pulling and becoming this kind of 
like monster, I, I guess is what I was picturing. Um, not, not, not good or bad, just kind of like, this is, this is what we're reaching. We're, like, this is what we're creating when we reach out and distort what was initially there. Um, and it kind of just is a thing that it is to no end. Um, and I thought it was interesting. And I think it's interesting how, how technology does that or, or does what I'm describing or what I think it does. And I think, yeah, um, that's kind of what I was trying to say, but I was, I was, I was, um, trying to say it in a way that was fun to say it and in, in uh, invoking kind of Marsha McLuhan's, um, freedom to, probe and say things aesthetically even if he could say things more clearly in a different way it's more fun to say them aesthetically yeah it's way more fun to say a seeping eyeball of a world spirit yeah (laughs) super fun to say it that way um also a communications undergrad here it's been a minute since i've heard a McLuhan reference which is really nice Uh, i just think he's so fun to read and i know that at the time when he was like like an an it scholar Mm -hmm. he got a lot of flack for not Mm -hmm. being rigorous but um as as time goes on i i just feel like there's something about his brand of like poetic theory that if you i don't know in the right headspace or if you read in the right way it really like fits our mm-hmm. current landscape and so I think he's so fun to read um it's funny that this is this is where it brought you because I'd actually like to talk about the intersection of technology and aging in this novel um as you've already you know lightly brought up uh tech is often seen as a threat to our humanity and, and in this book Norma is definitely struggling with being you know out of touch in in her age so to speak but at the same time that thing that ends up giving her the most vitality is her job as a transcriber as a typist um who relies on these like online access to these online documents mm-hmm. and i guess my question is in what ways is norma's experience of elderliness actually enhanced by technology hmm well well, certainly her intrigue, like her, her interest in, in what's going on is peaked. I think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of rabbit holes or, or uh, wormholes or whatever. There's a lot of places you can go on the internet where you can just like live an entire life and be completely absorbed by it. So that I think that's what's happening to her. She's being completely absorbed by uh, a a life that doesn't really exist. And so I'm not sure how much it has to do with her aging other that when, when you age, um, things change, people die in your life. And there, there's like these massive life changes that you have to come to terms with in some, in some way in the, in the internet kind of, it allows you not, not to come to terms with them. You don't have to move on or live your life you can you can live in these sort of netherworlds for indefinitely and just um i guess that's kind of what i was picturing when i described her floor as being covered with trash she just um she was just letting herself be absorbed by it and i think at some point she she starts to break out or maybe she has a little periods of breaking out at that i don't know if it's generalizable at all um that I, I do know some elderly people um, who who have suddenly devoted an immense amount of their time to Facebook, and they just mm-hmm. spend so much time on Facebook, and they like every single 
picture that you post and if you post an album then they like every single one and they comment on every and it's very absorbing and it feels like connection to their family that maybe they're distant from they're distant from or um whatever it is so it's it, it fulfills a need but it also kind of augments the need at the same time so i'm not i'm not sure um uh, I don't want to make a judgment or anything, but it, it definitely um, might, not definitely, it could be creating the need that it's filling. Um, and that's, that's part of the sort of McLuhan uh, distortion. Uh, I, I think that, that occurs with technology. Um, it, it's kind of funny, like, I used to write, so another reference to my grandmother, but we, I used to write her letters. Mm -hmm. um, pretty often I still sometimes do but say like once every six months we would exchange letters for most of my life we were just always pen pals we generally lived in different places and so we were always pen pals and now online we she she wants to talk every every day it's not like there's no space between the, the conversation is non-stop it's always kind of going and um I think some people if if you don't respond to them right away it feels like like a, a snubbing, like they, they're applying their regular life rules to internet interactions, which change rapidly. So uh, I don't know, I think it would be hard. I think that would be, a, a, it's hard for me and, it, and it'll get harder as time goes on and the rules of the internet and socializing on the internet change. And maybe I won't understand them quite the same way and I'll apply uh, rules that don't exist anymore to new situations and new people. And I, I think that that could be a, a difficult thing for people aging on the internet, not really understanding the spaces that they're operating within. On page 87, Norma thinks, why can't I get used to my own kind of tragedy? Um, and then later, uh, soon after, she says, trying to find my grief as interesting as somebody else's. And that whole section, you know, I loved it, um, but these specific two phrases, why can't I get used to my own kind of tragedy and then trying to find my grief as interesting as someone else's uh, really struck a chord with me because it made me think like, if grief feels so bad, which it does, it's inherent in what it is, um, and it's why we find it hard to find our own grief interesting, why doesn't that stop us from being interested in someone else's? In fact, it almost turns into like a pleasurable, I hate to say it, but that's probably why we, you know, it speaks to reality TV and all yeah. the crap of this world or whatever. But it, 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 I think it's an interesting question. If it's such a hard thing to feel individually, why is it such a, uh, why does it have a, a sense of uh, pleasure in accessing it through someone else? Yeah, that's a good question. That's, um, it's true, and it's really it's really strange. Um, I guess initially I was uh, thinking that sometimes our 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 feelings as they're occurring don't feel real. They only feel real when you kind of make a story out of them and look at them. And I don't know if that's the case for everybody, but I've heard sort of stories, or I've seen um, plots of, of sitcoms or or movies where somebody is at a funeral and they don't, they, they don't feel the way they think they should feel. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, uh, well, it, it's just that a lot of our, our feelings and our ways of understanding the world are obviously cultural and, and we're sort of in like a, a culturally chaotic moment um, because we live in this, this sort of 
global culture um, or like multifaceted global culture where there's a million different ways to act and feel and you kind of just have to sign up for one. But they all involve um, uh, seeing yourself almost in the third person, like how should I behave in this situation? Um, and I like to imagine, or maybe there was a time in, in human existence where um, how you behave was kind of just uh, how people around you have always behaved, how people, how your parents and grandparents had behaved. Mm. Like cultural cu culture wouldn't have been as um, self-conscious. It would have been more um, just part of your makeup um, from from birth, it wouldn't you wouldn't have been reflective. So I'm sure that there are pros and cons to being reflective about how you how you feel about the way that things are going on. But sometimes you don't know how to see what you're experiencing as it's going on. So you feel removed from good and bad experiences. Um, I'm trying to remember what the bulk of your you had like an essential. Part yeah, of why your can't question. I get used to my own kind of tragedy and? trying to find my grief as interesting as somebody else's. Yeah, so why do we find other people's um, grief so interesting or why do we find other people's experience? I guess, um, I think it has something to do with putting in our, ourselves in those scenarios, kind of like when you do watch reality shows and you're like, well, I wouldn't act like that. This is how I would behave. Um, mm -hmm. Or or you could, I guess you could argue that it would be like a cathartic thing when other people, are, when you witness other people doing it, it's kind of like you're, you're, you do have a culture suddenly. It's like, this is how we act when we feel like this. Um, so I, I think maybe we're a little bit culturally lost. And so that, that, um, that affects our response to phenomena, phenomena that go, the things that go on in the world. And um, when we see other people behaving in a way that feels real and actors are are really good at making something feel real whether or not it is mm -hmm. besides the point but we see them behaving this way or we see reality stars sort of like hamming it up for the for the camera then maybe it gives us um a bit of a model or something to um yeah uh so either cathartic or model these are the two sort of probes i'm going with maybe that's that's why we enjoy other people's grief it's either mm -hmm. cathartic or it's a model for how to behave it's my best guess right now <laughs> it's a great guess um um <laughs> this is gonna be a, i don't know this is gonna be a very broad and loose question and heavy at the same time i mean i, I think now you get a taste of how this show works but um i'm just giving it a heads up because it's it's more about um, just getting your perspective and like getting your voice on something, having read your perspective and your voice, even if it's fictitious in, in, in your novel. So can we talk, and it's it's a word that's on the, the sort of the back cover of the book. Um, can we talk to listeners about the word parasocial oh, and what yeah. your understanding of it is? Um, so I think parasocial relationships are pretty interesting. And a base, uh, basic definition, I guess, is just having uh, a one-way interaction with uh, another person and usually when we think about it um, in like contemporary terms it's with a character or with a celebrity or someone who you don't actually have direct access to but the initial um, sort of foundation of the term as far as I understand it I think they've been doing parasocial studies since like the 1950s I read um, some of the older studies and it was basically like you have uh, what they call imaginary interactions with everybody 
Um, so everybody you interact with either before, after, sometimes during your, the, the time that you're interacting with, you, you, have, you picture yourself talking to them. Um, so this is a way that people either practice what to say or they, they try and like redo what they've said before, which is basically a practice for the future. So this kind of like potentially natural uh, uh, thing that we do, imagine our conversations with other people for, for practice or for, I don't know, for w whatever else it, it might be for, um, that gets translated to like these new environments where we have um, yeah, like very one-sided environments. So for the longest time, it was like TV, radio, and the celebrities would be like bigger than life and you would just love them. And um, people would have um, emotional reactions to their favorite celebrities. And there's a lot of great uh, papers on parasocial studies where it talks about um, people who are obsessed with certain or like entire groups of people obsessed with certain uh, TV shows or celebrities and, you know, stalking obsession like kind of things happen but um now we're in a different model where um we can have parasocial relationships with people we don't know but can know like we can enter their space we can become part of their world so it's all much more immediate and i'm not sure what that does to our imaginary interactions, our imaginary conversations with these sort of idolized people. But um, it's certainly changing. And, and I, I don't know, that's, that's just kind of my um, understanding of where we're at with uh, parasocial studies. I tried to keep up a little bit on the literature, but um, mm -hmm. I don't think I'm an, an expert or anything. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. You're not where we that's unexpected it's i'd like to think of this show as um like sort of making read, reading less scary or intimidating to people um and i think it's as simple as like talking about the ideas of the book and sort of breaking it down for them and like i i'm sure that there are many people out there who don't read but who think about everything that you just said just because they're living in this world and dealing with it themselves so it's sort of like it's just great to have to be able to like provide an open doorway to knowledge and then what they do with that is what they do with that but it's sort of just my way of saying hey you might not realize this but other people are thinking about this too they're just using words that for some reason you're not aware of or interested in because you put literature on this like at an arm's length but it it's still actually much closer to you than you might realize does that make sense mm -hmm. yeah totally yeah so Norma speaks of her ex in a resentful tone almost always but also speaks in a tone of nostalgia and longing um, what are your thoughts on longing for someone or something of which you also continuously feel resentment towards? It's yeah. sort of like missing something that you hated in a, yeah. if I could say it in a really reductive way. Yeah. I don't know how to avoid that. Like, I think, <laughs> I think that that is something that happens to me and then you don't know which, at which point your mind was skewed. Like, was I just... Like, was, did I suck at living it when I was in it? Or am I misremembering it now? Mm -hmm. And um, it, it, it's, it's not fair, <laughs> but it's, it's just the way it goes. Like you have relationships with people, they go well, they go badly. There's always things that you could have done different, but um, it's, it's really hard 
not to romanticize them and um, uh, or or blow them up into something that they never were. I, I don't know why we do that exactly. It's uh, to make our, I, I don't know. I don't really, I, I've always kind of hated nostalgia just because I, it feels very twisted to me and it can, like just looking at pictures can make you like swell with emotion and it's all in your head and it kind of drives me crazy. I hate that feeling, but um, it's a feeling and it's real and I don't know why. I don't know why nostalgia, but um, I think that, I think nostalgia is the thing that it's kind of skewing Norma's feelings. Um, I think that she was probably in uh, a relationship that was just very settled and dull and it's something that she didn't hate when she was in it because she wouldn't have thought to hate it but afterwards it feels like well because I, I think her husband dying almost feels like a betrayal like like just leaving her uh to start a new person from scratch like she doesn't feel like she has any basis and so there's some they're really hammering hard uh all of a sudden but uh yeah so i i think it's, I, I guess it's like maybe it's a bigger thing of like either it's hard to know your own life and your own mind with any accuracy. And so then when it's over to think about it, um, you're you have to make a story or mm -hmm. and sometimes the story is a lie and <laughs> you either accept it or, or you stop thinking about it, maybe. Wait, does that mean nostalgia is a lie? You said <laughs> sometimes so, the story is a lie, but can nostalgia yeah. be a lie? I guess so, eh? As someone who's deeply nostalgic, that's <laughs> that's really mind blowing to me right now. Are you really? I, I, Ella, what do you like about it? What do you like about the feeling? Uh, I, I think I like the the. I mean, I'm only ever nostalgic for for something good, something that mm -hmm. felt good. I guess I'm never. I mean, okay, that's not true. I've been I've been nostalgic for relationships <laughs> that definitely soured and you know are have ended for the better, but. Um, I'm not nostalgic for our fighting. I'm nostalgic for like the good times that we had together. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm nostalgic. It just makes me very aware of the passing of time and that things are momentary, which can be a sense of comfort, definitely. But for me, it, it sort of gives me anxiety because it reminds me that there's um, an expiration date on all of this, including the bad stuff. Yeah. And it's sort of like... I looking at photos and why I take photos of everything the way that I do is so that I can th that feeling the way that I felt that day you know may never repeat itself but the closest I'll get to is by looking at that photo oh and that's I, what I drives me crazy that's what drives you crazy yeah because you can't because it's gone because it's forever gone and it will never be relived or potentially potentially unless mm -hmm. there's some weird world in the in the afterlife but um yeah no that I just find like that kind of pain of like the loss of the real of it, um, oh, it hurts. I don't like it. But <laughs> it, it, it hurts too for me too. You're yeah. definitely not wrong. It's just, it sounds like for you, it exclusively hurts. And for me, I'm like, it's like a good kind of hurt, but like I wouldn't yeah. deny that it hurts. But even then, like I, I can go down nostalgia loopholes that are bad, <laughs> like <laughs> that are exclusively bad. Um, but it's interesting to, to hear you speak of it that way. Um, on page 92, she thinks again, um, Norma thinks again, to try to enjoy the peace I thought I wanted and must endure all the more bitterly for having entertained the want, I'll take up my terrible freedom. What can you tell listeners about a terrible freedom? So I think uh, 
that line is essentially like she there were like you're thinking of times when in your life you thought bad things about people you love so you were kind of just like i just wish they would go away kind of thing and then when it actually happens because it happens to her because she's older because all of her relatives are dead um she she's left with freedom she has the freedom that she had wanted but it's not good anymore it feels mm. bad she mm. feels alone and um just lost and a little bit pointless and so um I guess that's why she would call it a terrible freedom because it's something that she would have entertained. Like there would be moments where probably, you know, everybody's talking, everything's loud. And she's just like, if they would all just go away and uh, now she's got it and she is stuck with what she's got. It's mm -hmm. kind of like, be careful what you wish for, except it's, it's an inevitable, like you're, mm -hmm. you're always kind of going to be alone at some point. And uh, yeah, I think her ter terrible freedom is just her, her total freedom, her being completely untethered to any human in the world. Um, Michael Trussler's blurb on the back identifies your writing as three things, poignant, precise, and hallucinogenic. Um, in what ways do you think precise writing can be hallucinogenic? This is a good question. I think that, um, <laughs> I, I guess I would think that there would be moments where it's precise. So there are moments when it's really clear and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and then there are moments when you get lost in maybe um, these potentially McLuhan-inspired um, probes into like the, the shape of a um, technologically enhanced world or something. And at that point, I think it would become hallucinogenic. I'm not sure it can be precise and hallucinogenic at the same time unless unless you're like hitting on something and people can kind of feel what you mean um but you're doing it in like a um sort of a picture instead of a that uh, i think that's what he yeah. means i just wanted to hear you say <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think it's a good possibility yeah yeah i do think that, that the text does that to me i mean again i'm even thinking back to like the quote that brought up McLuhan at all, and again, um, the seeping eyeball of a, of a world spirit. These, these that is so hallucinogenic. But what what it's speaking to and the reality that it's speaking to does feel precise at the same time. Um, my last question for you um, on page one sixty: uh, to watch someone watch TV is to embarrass them unbeknownst to them. Why and how? So I think um, this is kind of what we were talking about before, where it's hard to know. Um, it's hard to know how to how to be in the world, and Norma certainly doesn't know how to be. So uh, there's a model for how to be, and it's television, but it's 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 like a fake life it's mm -hmm. it's one that's lived and you're not in it and you're not part of it but it's a model for you so i guess um why do i find that embarrassing i find it um i find it i guess i find it embarrassing to to let other people like sculpt the <laughs> the world and you're mm -hmm. just a passive um recipient to that and uh so that that's probably my own thoughts. Some of it 
coming through in her rant about what to do with herself. So her, she, this, this section is essentially like she doesn't know what to do with herself. She's, she's watching TV as a thing to do. She doesn't really like paying attention to it. And when she finds she's paying attention to it, that there's not really anything there. There's nothing underneath it. It's like an empty culture. Um, and some of my thoughts on, on TV are coming through there, but essentially because um, I, would, I would rather be someone who would, who would make things than passively watch them. I mean, you can, you can be both. You can also in, indulge in watching, but um, it, it bothers me to just absorb other people's thoughts or views or versions of reality. Um, and not have any versions of my own or any versions that I've created with people. So I think you can probably, it's probably really different for people who have like big families and they're always kind of generating action and momentum in their lives. But for Norma, who's alone and uh, me, I'm mostly kind of alone, um, just like wandering the world. It sounds sad, but I find with it basically, uh, your life is not, you have to make culture, I guess. Your culture is not generated by the people around you. Um, or mm -hmm. you could just absorb it. And it's potentially maybe a little bit of a, a criticism or a personal perspective on just being, a, a, like just sort of absorbing culture. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's such an interesting answer. I, I sort of love asking these kinds of questions because these kinds of questions in particular, I think it's pretty obvious that I'm coming into it thinking I know the answer already and then I get the answer and it's not at all what I thought it was going to be. So just for, you know, just to let you know, what's really interesting about it is I read it as Norma feeling the embarrassment on behalf of the person that she's absorbing, observing. Um, and so... I thought that the act of, I just, for me, I was like, oh, this is embarrassing because you're catching a human being in the midst of like a real intimate moment where they, no one thinks they're being watched when they're watching something, right? No one realizes, no one thinks, they're too absorbed in the watching of the thing that it would be terribly embarrassing and um, you would be made terribly self-aware if you, if, it, if, it, if you learned that someone was in fact watching you watch something. Um, but it's so fun to hear your answer sort of more have to do more with the consumption part than the observing part. Yeah, I guess the observing part probably comes from like <laughs> walking around and peering in people's windows or like mm -hmm. at night when you see like the, the whole place is lit up by a thing on the wall and you can see it kind of changing and the colors changing. Mm -hmm. And it always felt a little bit sad to me to see that. Like I, you would rather peek in a window and see like, some kind of boisterous scene people are like singing or dancing or talking but you can't do that all the time mm -hmm. um and so when they relax and our way of relaxing is to watch tv and then you just walk by all these houses and they all have this kind of like blaring and you can kind of picture the person sitting there eating snacks or whatever and it just feels um i don't know it just doesn't feel like real life uh and it, it feels a little bit ugly I guess not that I don't do it I'm not trying to alienate all people who like tv I just I just feel like sometimes um there there's something uh, too too like 
brain drain, like you just turn yourself off. It's just like, a, it's probably just like a couch potato cliche that I have in my mind and that uh, adapted to this to this character in a book. I'm not sure these are satisfying answers. <laughs> they're deeply satisfying, no. Um, yeah. They're deeply satisfying, except like I said, when they sort of subvert your initial expectations yeah. as they did, just did mine. Um, and they're deeply relatable for what it's worth. I, I know exactly the feeling of what you mean when you're walking by your neighbor's house and you just see the glare of the TV and you sort of just make an assessment about their lives. Yeah, just but imagine you saw like a crowd of people playing a piano or something. Right. Like right, how totally. that how that would change your your feeling of it. But it's not it's probably not a fair um, little assessment I'm making. I think it's fair. I think it's especially <laughs> in that you know that it's not it doesn't matter. Context doesn't matter in this case. Yeah. Like if you walk by you see what you're seeing and you're feeling what you're feeling, even if you can sort of step outside yourself and and know the reality of it better. It's still, it, it would just feel better to walk by that sort of boisterous party that you're talking about. And it, it does, just in the same way that it feels better to be at the boisterous party with everyone you love versus yeah. just like drowning your brain out with, you know, yet another <laughs> screen time. So, yeah. no, that makes sense. Um, that's our time. Thank you so much, Sarah. This is really lovely. Um, listeners, you can pick up a copy of Norma uh, in Montreal at Library um, uh, Pulp Books and Cafe. Uh, and if you're listening anywhere else, wherever you get uh, your indie local bookseller needs satisfied. Thank you, Sarah. That was amazing. You have great questions. Thanks so much. <laughs>